So again, today we are, uh, I have the great joy of starting out kind of a summer study with us through the book of the Psalms. And so this is the, this is the plan. So spending uh, about a month or so, month or two, every year, we are going to start, as of today, uh, walking through the Psalms. Now, uh, if you aren't too good at math, like me, I'm gonna break that down for you. That will mean that it'll take us about 12 years to walk through the book of Psalms together. So slowly but surely, we will make our way through. And I have gray hair now, but in 12 years, I will have many more. Uh, so it'll take us around 12 years, I think, to do so. It's a long project. Uh, and the goal every week is going to be to explore a couple of individual psalms, um, to study kind of the content of them, the context of them, into which they were written, along with the expectations and longings of those individual psalms and how they ultimately help us look forward and anticipate the coming of Jesus, who is the true king, the Messiah, the better son, which we just read of, all that the book longs for. And then, and then we're gonna wrap up every sermon by discussing how we as Christians ought to apply, sing, and pray the content of the psalms in our lives as God's people. Now, if you are newer to the Bible uh, and you don't know where the book of Psalms is, maybe when Rory was like reading it, you're like trying to frantically find it in a Bible and you have no idea, no worries. Today is a great Sunday to be with us because we're going to spend um, uh, the first Sunday talking about the entire thing. And uh, if you wanted to just look, actually, if you just, if you just like open your Bible, if you've got a Bible, you open it right in the middle. You will, okay, I landed in Isaiah. Uh, I got maps and stuff at the end. But if you just flip left a little bit, you'll find the Psalms. Uh, you'll find the Psalms. So that's a really easy way to find it. It's right smack dab kind of in the middle of the Bible, depending on if your Bible's long like mine uh, and has some extra notes and stuff in it. Uh, but, but it's right there. And, uh, and today what we're gonna do, as I said, is we're gonna do an entire overview of the entire book of Psalms which is gonna be helpful because whether today is uh, the very first time that you're even looking at that word Psalms and you're wondering why in the world there's a P there, it's like a silent P and you're like, what the, what's happening, right? Or whether you've been reading and praying and singing the Psalms for decades, what my goal is today is that we're all on the same page together, understanding the overall rhythm of the book. So, so that's kind of how you find the book. You open it directly in the middle. Um, and uh, as you're maybe even still trying to find it, I'm gonna give you some trivia on the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms has 150 chapters in it. It is the longest book of the Bible. And the original Hebrew title for the book would be translated into English as the word praises. So what you're really seeing is, an, is a really large hymn book that is smack in the middle of the Christian Bible. And the Psalms are therefore songs and praises and prayers that would have been sung and reflected upon. Uh, and they are all of the ones who are made to God. That's who they're sung to, prayed to, is to God, whose character and mighty works of creation and redemption are detailed in the rest of the Old Testament. So you also notice it's in the Old Testament. So that'll be important in a minute. I'll tell you why, but it's in the Old Testament. Um, so in the, in the Psalms, the important thing to also note is that we don't have any brand new information about God. As you're reading through the Psalms, no brand new information about God. Rather, uh, we, what we see is God's people responding to God throughout history of what they know to be true. So as they walk through calamity or suffering on account of being God's people, as they walk through the consequences of their sin, which will lead them into exile, as they're taken out of the promised land, uh, and then they, they come back to the promised land as they have to have trust in the midst of God, in the midst of Babylon, but then God brings them back to the land. These are the songs that God's people would have sung 
And these praises actually follow the entire storyline of the Old Testament. And they are beautiful and encouraging and helpful. Thus, for those of you who haven't spent a whole lot of time in the Psalms, you are in for a treat as we are beginning to study and read through them one by one, as they really give us a pattern for how we too can voice all of our concerns and prayers and praises and songs to God. Because what the Psalms do is they help fill our mouths with prayer and remind us of the character and nature of God in in ways that, that really no other kind of literature that we have in the Bible does. This is why as Christians, historically, we have loved memorizing and pouring over the contents of the Psalms for the last 2,000 years because they give voice to all of our concerns, our desperate longings, our laments, our praises that mark our experience as God's people. Thus, though they are written about a certain time in Israel's history, they also present patterns that God's people walk through in our lives, which is why we, as God's people, easily identify with the Psalms. It's why we can read them and understand the longings and the urges of these Psalms, and we can be reminded of the character and nature of God as we walk through sufferings in this broken world, but also also, we, we can experience the, the heights of joy and, and, and have psalms that can, can fill our mouths with praises to God in the midst when things are going really well. That's why, uh, and because it, it kind of covers this, this entire range of emotion, that's why John Calvin notes in his introduction to the psalms that he was accustomed to calling this book an anatomy of the soul. An anatomy of the soul. He wrote, there is not an emotion of which he could be conscious of that is not here presented. For the Holy Spirit has drawn here to life all of the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and perplexities that we face as God's people. And I think he's right. So so the content of the Psalms plays many different and important roles in the lives of Christians, so much so that there are even some churches that exclusively sing the Psalms when they gather together as God's people, while other churches like ours are committed to singing the content and the theology of the Psalms that is consistent with Scripture, including the Psalms, so that we're singing truths of God's people that are found within and built upon the Scriptures. Thus, as Christians, we recognize that the Psalms contained the theology that have filled the mouths of God's people for thousands of years. And that's why we love them, we pray them, we sing them, we memorize them, for they teach us how to approach God in every season of our lives. Now, you might have a question as we're, as we're coming through. One of the things we always talk about when we talk about who wrote this, this book or who wrote that book? Like who wrote the book of Jonah? We were like, I don't know. Maybe Jonah, I don't know, somebody. Well, who wrote the book of Psalms? Now your immediate answer might be David. That might, that, that's right. That, for good reason, uh, he wrote 75 of the 150 Psalms. That's half of them. That's a lot. But as we're reading through the Psalms, we see that the other 75 either don't have an author or the author is listed as someone other than David. So that's kind of a trick question. You're like, who wrote the Psalms? And you're like, David. You're like, well, kind of. So so the real question isn't so much who wrote the book when it comes to this particular book of the Bible, but rather the question is, who ordered this book together? Who brought together these Psalms? And the most common answer that is given by scholars is that while these Psalms would have been sung by Israel throughout their history from the time of David onward, 
And there's actually a Psalm of Moses in there. Uh, But the the final form of this book was brought together by an editor. Now, we know that the text was fixed by the time of Ben Sirah, who was a Jewish scribe in the second century BC. But more probable is that the final form of this book was completed at the end of the fifth century BC by Ezra and Nehemiah. Those men that God raised up when Israel was returning to the promised land after they had been exiled because of their sin. Now, if you are a bit rusty on your Old Testament history, anybody rusty on your Old Testament history? What we see unfold, I'm gonna give you a little little history of the entire Old Testament, is is that God from the very beginning makes land promises. We're gonna fast forward the first 12 chapters, but in, in chapters 12 to 15, God makes land promises in the book of Genesis to Abraham and to his offspring. And they end up, as we know, leaving the land and going to Egypt during a famine. If you remember Joseph's story at the end of Genesis, that's what that's talking about. And then Exodus, which we went through last year, where Egypt had brought Israel under slavery. And then God, with his mighty hand, redeemed and restored them and saved his people while bringing judgment onto the land and the nation of Egypt. Then Israel eventually makes it to the promised land as Joshua leads them and they begin conquering Then they get into the land and what we see unfold throughout the Old Testament is that Israel just keeps disobeying God. And so God raises up various kings from other nations or kind of like pirates to come in and to defeat Israel and to bring them and to enslave them as God would bring discipline upon them. And then they would turn and repent from their sin and God would raise up a judge. And then they would be faithful as it's the book of Judges. For as long as God's people had that judge alive, they would honor the Lord. But the second that judge would die, they would go right back to worshiping idols all over again. And then God would raise up another pirate who would come in and destroy them. And then they would be under some suffering. They would repent, another judge. And that's the book of Judges, just over and over again. And this happens until we get to the book of Samuel. And God raises up a man named Samuel. He's the last judge over Israel. He's also a priest. And he anoints Israel's first king, Saul, to be king. But then Saul sins against God. So God raises up David to be king. And he promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David's line will for eternity be the kingly line of God's people. Then after David dies, God raises up Solomon, his son, to be the next king. But then after Solomon's reign, what we see is we see a divided kingdom happen. So there's a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom named Judah. And so uh, what happens is that of all the kings of the northern uh, tribes, not a single one of those kings pleases the Lord. They are all evil dudes, not a single one of them. So they are captured by Assyria and taken off into exile. Then a number of years later, Judah is also taken into exile by the Babylonians. So that's when you see like Daniel, you might know the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego taken from the land and they're in Babylon and they are there. Then God raises up Cyrus the Persian, who is a pagan king. And he comes and he defeats Babylon. And then after this, Cyrus makes a decree that Israel is now able to go back into the promised land and start rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. And that is when we are introduced to Ezra and Nehemiah. 
This is the time when the book of Chronicles is written, which answers the questions that the exiles have as they're coming back into the land of how are God's promises going to extend to them? Will they have a king through the line of David? Should they set up the temple and start making sacrifices again? What should their leaders be like and how should they choose leaders? And, and many other such things are answered in the book. And then that's the time when the book of Psalms was brought together in the form that we now have it passed down to us even today. Now, this is also the psalm book that Jesus would have sung as he gathered with God's people every Sabbath. So as Jesus from birth all the way up, he would have gathered and sung these exact psalms every single Sabbath and probably had them on his lips just as every good Jew did throughout the week. So, so that is uh, how we now have the book of Psalms and it traces Israel's history, as I said, from the time of David throughout his reign down through the reign of the kings of Israel as they head into exile. And then there's songs for them as God's people in exile. And then there's songs that look forward to when they are brought back into the land and as they return back into the land. And so uh, I'm gonna lay all of my cards on the table then before we start uh, kind of walking through a big, huge overview of the book of Psalms. And here's what I'm going to be arguing in my sermon today. Are you ready? Great. Here we go. Here it is. My big argument is that the book of Psalms is a book of the Bible. That's my main argument. Now you might, you might say, duh, it's in the Bible. I get it. I get it. It's in the Bible. Of course, it's a book of the Bible. But here's what I mean by that. When I say it's a book of the Bible, see, see, because the book of Psalms is one of the inerrant, infallible books of the Bible, I would argue the content and the arrangement of the book of Psalms is also inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, sufficient, and profitable. So to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, this means that just as we read other books of the Bible in such a way where we try to understand the flow of the thought of the author, to try to understand what the book is about, right? We think about how we might read and study the book of Ephesians or Galatians, for example, where we start at the very beginning of the book and we walk through it bit by bit to understand the flow and the argument of that book, right? So the, the earlier parts impact the later parts of it. Likewise, the Psalms are a book of the Bible and they are to be read and studied similarly. So in the same way that 1 Corinthians has a flow of thought and a structure, it's accomplishing what Paul is meaning to say to that church and an argument is being crafted throughout it. Likewise, the Psalms are not some random assortment of praises that Israel sung that have just been placed willy-nilly in a book. Rather, the Psalms have been carefully categorized. They have been purposefully ordered in such a way to where these songs actually build upon and interpret and look back on one another all the way throughout it. So, for example, just as, I don't know if you've seen this hymn book, this, hymn, this Hymns of Grace from Grace Church. In the same way, if you might open a hymnal and you see there are a structure to the songs. There's songs about God the Father, songs about Jesus, there's songs about his death, there's songs about his resurrection, various things like that. Just like this psalm book has a structure to it, so too the psalms, this book of our Bibles, have been particularly brought together and placed where they are by an editor who brought together the entire hymn book of Israel in a particular way for a particular purpose. And the order of these psalms is inerrant, inspired, 
inspired by God to be in this particular order for a particular purpose. So, so I don't want you to just think kind of like if you're just like in your car, listening to the radio, a song pops up and you're like, oh, I like this song. Yay. And then that's it. That, that's not how we are to read the Psalms. Rather, we are to understand them, how they, how they fit in the overall structure of what's going on into, into the book. So it's not a coincidence, for example, that the first two Psalms that we just had read for us, what they actually function to do is to work as an introduction or a gateway into the rest of the book. So if you think about th- think about Genesis chapters one to three. In your mind, Genesis chapters one to three, they act as a gateway to understanding the entire rest of the Bible, don't they? If you understand Psalm one to three, you understand how the entire Bible is gonna unfold, right? Because we see God created everything as good, right, true, and perfect. He's the creator. We're made in his image, his male and female. Sin, brokenness enter the world. They touch everything. But then Genesis 3.15, we see God's plan of redemption and restoration. Everything won't always be broken. Rather, there will come a son, through the line of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike the heel of that son of of the woman. So right out of the gate, we know how the Bible is gonna unfold and what God's purposes and plans will be from Genesis all the way to Revelation, which is no wonder that at the end of Revelation, that's exactly what we see, isn't it? The seed of the woman, the son of God, the Messiah, Jesus conquers over all. He crushes the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent all bow before Jesus and they come under his eternal judgment for their sin and all things are redeemed and restored. And so, so knowing that, that macro story, we read Genesis 1 to 3, we're like, oh, it makes sense. The whole story is gonna unfold just like that. Well, and knowing that, when we read through the Bible, we see glimpses of that pattern just reflected over and over and over again, right? So it's so like, for example, when we were studying Exodus and we, we read about how, Israel is under slavery in Egypt, right? Do you remember that snaky-headed crown? That seed of the serpent is biting at the heel of the seed of the woman. But what does God do? He crushes the head of that terrible, terrible Pharaoh and redeems his people. And you say, ah, I've seen that pattern so far in God's word. This is, this is, that's, that's what's happening. So likewise, we see this over and over and over again through God's word. We see that again with Joshua when he brings God's people into the promised land and all the nations are subdued before him. The head of the serpent is just crushed as God fights for his people. And as David rises to power, admits adversity and suffering and his kingdom is established over against all the nations of the earth over the seed of the serpent, we see the seed of the woman dominating over the seed of the serpent. So we see these patterns just flow throughout all of scripture, reminding us of the bigger storyline, all pointing and leading the way to Jesus. Thus, as we start reading the book of Psalms, we see chapters one, two is an introduction into the Psalms and they explain to us some of the tension that we will be seeing. As we will see the blessed one, the anointed king of Israel and the wicked, the seed of the serpent. But we're also filled with hope as we see there's a coming day when the righteous king will rule and his enemies will be under his feet. So it's important for us to remember that these Psalms were written throughout the time of David's life, all the way up until exile, and then through that until the return to the land, as Israel is reflecting on the promises of God given through his word. And what they are doing is recognizing that there is this pattern throughout their history as they long for the coming king. 
And also the Psalms deal with the particular emotions of God's people who are fighting to trust in God as they walk through the brokenness of this world. So the Psalms, these praises, they give God's people's uh, songs to sing throughout redemptive history to remember what God has done and what he will do as well as they remind God's people of his promises and his character so that God's people might be empowered by the spirit to wait expectantly and longingly delighting in the Lord and in his word in the midst of trials and persecutions of various kinds, which only bring fuel to the fire of our waiting and expectation for the coming of Jesus. Thus, we can be assured that in the end, Jesus's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thus, for us, as pilgrims on life's narrow way in following Jesus, the Psalms are given to rehearse Israel's history as well as they, they point. They, they point to the coming kingdom of Jesus. They, they point to his earthly life and ministry, and they look forward to the future hope that Christ will bring. Thus, the book of Psalms functions to remind us as Christians of God's promises as we wait and experience suffering in this life. And as we wait, the Psalms also fuel our waiting and they fill our mouths with appropriate longing for that coming day as we walk through brokenness and suffering until the seed of the woman, Christ Jesus, will ultimately crush the head of the serpent and we will be free from persecution that we face at the hands of the seed of the serpent. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what's going on in the book. So what I'm hoping is as we walk through this study and study it uh, a bit by bit over the next 12 years, or so, that we might understand this book better as God's people and learn to pray these Psalms more fervently with greater longing as we walk through suffering as God's chosen people to the end that we might be filled with hope and expectation and longing for his kingdom to come. Now, I also want to acknowledge right out of the gate that I know that everything that I had just said about the book of Psalms probably works and runs counterculturally to how you have been taught how to read the Psalms. Right? That I was not taught how to read the Psalms like this growing up as a child. I didn't learn this until, oh, about 12 years ago. Uh, so I went through a lot of my life without ever knowing what the Psalms are meant to do and how they're to function in the life of a Christian. So maybe you were taught, just as I was, maybe inadvertently, that the Psalms, they don't work together to present any kind of glimpse into the history of Israel. We might not immediately think then that there is any structure to this book or that these Psalms work together to tell any kind of unified message or a unified story. Rather, you might think we can just flip open to any old Psalm and read it and then just immediately apply it into our life and then just move on with our day, right? You, you were taught that growing up? You just open a Psalm, read it. That Psalm's about you, read it. Thank you, Jesus. Have a great day, right? Anybody? Anybody? That was, that was me. Uh, and that's kind of how we were taught to make a one-to-one -one connection with that Psalm into our lives. And then, and then, so we read it and we say, hmm, this is probably true in my situation with my boss. So Lord, bring judgment on that guy. As I go into work, help me. I am the persecuted. And please break his teeth today. Right? Like, you're like, man, I don't think that Psalm was written about that. Uh, right? Or, or maybe you've been taught to read the Psalms as a devotional aid, right? So maybe depending on how you're feeling that day, there is a Psalm for you, right? So if you're feeling bad, if you're feeling lamented, like you need to lament, read a lament and just lament. Or if you need to be comforted, stay calm and read a Psalm. That will help you. 
But what we've been learning as a church is that we don't take any part of the Bible and just make a one-to-one connection with our life and just move about our day, right? Because we know that we are not the heroes of the text. The Bible's not written primarily about us, right? Yet when we come to the book of Psalms, we tend to do that. Cool. So I'm hoping that we stop doing that and start learning how rightly and appropriately to look at God's word. Now, if you're newer and you don't know how to read and study God's word, this is what we do. We are to come to a text and then what to do in that text is we are supposed to understand the context of the text. So you look at the text, context of the text, what is it saying? Then we see how that, that text maybe fits into the entire letter or book as a whole. Then we look to who was written to and we, we examine uh, how it would have been received by those people. What is the intended result in those people's lives? What, what it meant to them? So, so we understand the text, broader context, point up to how does, how does these people at this time, they received this letter, how would they have sung this song? Why is it important to them? Then we look forward to how it is fulfilled in Jesus, how this text anticipates Christ, how it reflects back onto Christ, how it makes us long for Jesus so that he's the hero of every text, that every story whispers his name. Then we apply it down into our lives. This is how we study God's word. We don't just go them straight to us today or else we get into very, very strange applications into our life that don't make any sense into the life of us as God's people. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to work against what we've naturally been taught about the Psalms and instead treat it like a book of the Bible ought to be treated. So don't move from the text straight into your life to try to apply it. Because when you do, as I said, you'll come up with all kinds of wrong applications. So for example, in this book, we see that there are a whole lot of Psalms. In fact, most of book one and two uh, all have to do in the Psalms with the suffering of the anointed king of Israel. The anointed king of Israel walking through suffering as the seed of the serpent keeps attacking him over and over and over again. So if you're reading any of those Psalms and you start applying that, light, that text into your life without thinking about how the Psalm isn't firstly about us, but rather about the anointed king and his suffering, you'll make wrong applications because I don't know if you know this or not, but you are not the anointed king of Israel. Do you know that? That's not you. You might be a wonderful dude. You're not the anointed king of Israel. There is an anointed king of Israel not you. It's not you. So, so when, you, when you start reading it and you're like, this is about me. No, you're, it's not. It's not about you. Uh, primarily, it's about the anointed king of Israel. Now, are there things we can sing and pray and learn and call out to God in the midst of, of reading this psalm as we understand it? Yes and amen. And so we're going to talk about a lot of ways that we can do that as we walk through individual songs. But what I want you to remember out the gate is, first off, you are not the anointed king of Israel. It's not primarily about you. And as you learn that more and more so, as you begin learning and reading and praying through the Psalms, you actually begin to pray them rightly, not wrongly. And as a result, actually, your love of God and love of his word grows, not diminishes. So I'm trying to teach you a much better way, a much more profitable way to actually look at God's word and engage with it so that you can grow spiritually and not stay in infancy, right? So that's our, that's our goal. So we need to be careful as God's people to not read the Psalms wrongly and end up making wrong applications in our life or to think that God is promising us certain things that he is not. 
You might read a promise that is meant for the anointed king of Israel. You might say, that promise is for me. I have a verse. It's in the Bible. It's not for you. It's like reading about Abraham. I will make your, your progeny like the stars in the sky. And you read Genesis 12 and you're like, that's me. And the Lord is like, that's Abraham. That's not you. And you're like, but I have a verse. Well, not helpful. So, so that's why I wanted today to do an entire overview of the book so that we don't miss the forest for the trees. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking kind of at a 30,000 foot view of what's going on in the book. Now, before we do that, we need to understand um, the main characters in the Psalms. So I want to introduce to you all of the main characters. And you can notice them all in what we just read in Psalm chapter 1 and 2. In fact, if you're a circler or underliner, you can circle or underline and you can see these in your own in your own Bibles. So the main characters, who are the main characters in the Psalms? And the first one is pretty obvious. God, Yahweh, he's a main, he's a main character uh, as, as all the Psalms are prayed or sung to Yahweh. Thus, God is petitioned to over and over again. He's looked to for help. And what we see is that he is the one who's sovereignly working out his plan throughout the entire book. Second character that we uh, are going to be talking about is one I've mentioned. He is the blessed one who we are introduced to in Psalm chapter one. And then as we see in Psalm chapter two, he is called the son of God, the anointed one, Yahweh's king that God has set up on Zion in Israel. And he is the one that all the nations of the world must submit themselves to for mercy or else come under the righteous wrath and perish. Now, this will be firstly applied to David and to Solomon and then ultimately Christ. So they are like shadows that point to the true and better David who will come. Thirdly, we are introduced to the wicked. We see them in Psalm 1, and we understand that they are those who do not delight in the law of God. Rather, they are those who scoff at God's law, and they are those who will perish. We then see their character developed in Psalm 2, as they are those nations, peoples, kings of the earth, and rulers who take counsel together, and they plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. Again, not you, the king of Israel. And they are those who, unless they are wise and repent of their evil and serve the Lord with fear, demonstrating this by their allegiance to the Son, they will perish. And we see the wicked come up often in the Psalms as they are those who are of the seed of the serpent. And they will, they will go after and persecute the Lord's anointed and the people of the king. Thus, our fourth character in this book is the group that is referred to as the blessed. Now, you might miss this group if you are not careful. They are those who take refuge in the Son, Psalm 2.12. They are the people of the King who become wise through the Scriptures. And they are those who, following their King, delight themselves in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night as they serve the anointed King with joy. So... Those are our main characters, and we're going to see them come up over and over again throughout the Psalms. So you can make little notes in your Bible every time you see these characters, and it'll help you understand what's going on in the various texts. So if you're tracking with me, if you believe that the book of Psalms is a book of the Bible, and we sought to study it as a book of the Bible, then you might wonder, well, how should we start studying the overall message of the book? I mean, it's 150 chapters like that. Can I get a little help knowing how to study? So you might wonder, how are the Psalms even structured? So you might wonder, how do, they, how do they all fit together? What kind of order are they? You say that they are, I kind of believe that, but I don't, I don't know, can you show this to me? So thankfully, as we start studying the book, we see that this actually is one big book, the book of Psalms, one big book that is composed of five smaller books. One big book, five tinier, littler books. Now, if you're looking at Psalm chapter one, 
in your Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Right above Psalm 1, what does it say? Yell out at me. Book one. There it is. Book one. Now, uh, if you want to flip over to Psalm 42, Psalm 42, what does it say right above Psalm 42? Book two. We have some We have some smart kids in the room. Book two, right? If we keep going, we'll notice it a couple more times. And so the rhythm kind of looks like like this. So so Psalm Psalm 1 to 41 is book one. Book two is Psalm 42 to 72. Book three is Psalm 73 to 89. Book four is Psalm 90 to 106. Book five is Psalm 107 to 150. That's the structure of the book itself. And at the end of books one to four, if we were to read, for example, Psalm 41, 72, 89, 106, we'd notice they all end similarly. They all have four things that categorize them at the very end. So they begin with the words, blessed be, then they use God's name, Yahweh. Then they include the phrase to the age or to the age forever. And lastly, they close with the word, amen. So these benedictions stand as like punctuation marks at the very end of the books. So that's how the little books inside of the bigger book all work together. Now, if you're wondering what about the very end of the book of Psalms, how does it end? Well, at the very end of the book of Psalms, there are five books, Psalms 146 to 150, that just extol and praise the God as one massive doxology at the very end of the book. So let's come back together. Our premise is the book of Psalms is a book of the Bible And it tells one unified message that traces the history of Israel from the time of David until the return of the exiles into the promised land. And Psalms is made up, it's one book, it's made up of five smaller books. That's our job, therefore, as students of the Bible, as Christians, is to understand how these smaller books work together to walk through the history of Israel and to test our theory to see if it's true. If what we think is happening in the Psalms is visible throughout the content of these songs. Now, full disclosure, I am going to be sharing today something that I have not just magically come up with on my own. I know you're shocked. You're like, I thought you were that smart. I am not. I am very much not. Um, I was greatly influenced by one of my seminary professors, Dr. James Hamilton from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when I was in his Old Testament class. And I've read a lot of his books that have had a profound impact on me, including he has a two-volume tome on the Psalms. And so as I was writing this sermon this week, I actually sent Jim an email. And I'm like, Jim, this is what you're saying, right? And he wrote back and he said, yes. And I said, praise God. So uh, as we're studying and reading this book, I wanted to give us a couple of study helps for how we are to understand what the book says. And then we're gonna get into the nitty gritty and warp speed throughout the entire book to show you how it all works together. But before we do, I want you to know five things that are important that are good study helps for you. So in the book of Psalms, Firstly, we need to look for their use of repeated phrases. Repeated phrases. The things, the sayings that will come up over and over and over again throughout the book. Secondly, we need to remember is, this is an Old Testament book, which means that we need to approach the book knowing that it is a collection of songs written by God's people as they interact with God throughout the storyline of the Old Testament. Thus, we ought to read these psalms with the lens of the wider theology of the Old Testament what we know about God through his word. Thirdly, knowing that David is a central figure in this book, if we read some things about David's life, this book will make much more sense to you. If you're like, bro, I'm brand new to Jesus. I know nothing about David. If you will read 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, and then you start reading through the Psalms, you'll be like, 
what? This makes so much sense. But if you don't know anything about David's life, you'll be like, bro, I got no idea. This makes no sense. So uh, if, if you want to read through that, that'd be really helpful, especially 2 Samuel chapter 7. That is crucial to understanding the book um, and the future hope of the one who would come through the line of David to be the better Davidic king, Jesus, at the end of the book. Fourthly, we need to remember that God is reliable and he will do all that he has said. God cannot lie just for the simple fact that he is God. So he is reliable. He will do everything that he has said. That's very important in the Psalms and the hope of the Psalms. Fifthly, uh, one last thing that we might easily overlook as modern readers are superscriptions that are in the Psalms and some little historical notices that we see in those superscriptions. Now, if you have never heard of the word superscriptions, anybody? Anybody ever actually heard of the word? Everyone is like, no, and I've never heard of that. I, I'm not talking about superheroes. Those superheroes are awesome. I am not talking about your Amazon subscription, which is like a superscription because there's music and movies and delivery. That's not what I'm talking about either. Um, rather, what we're talking about when we use the word superscription are the little lines at the beginning of the psalm that present specific information in a particular order, but also they indicate authorship. Now, you might have just glossed over these before when reading the Psalms as unimportant. Oh, but they are not. So let me show you what I mean. Uh, if you look with me at Psalm chapter four, uh, for example, Psalm four, you'll see the words over it, what? Somebody yell at me. In your Bible, Psalm four, what do the words over it say? Yes, uh, more so over it. More so over, if you're looking at your Bibles, are you looking at your Bibles? What does it say over Psalm four? Answer me when I call. Is that a superscription? No, that was placed there by an editor. It's not infallible. It's not inerrant. Those guys can be wrong. Don't look at that and be like, oh, this Psalm is about that. Uh-uh, don't trust that. Actually read and study the text itself. That is not a superscription. The superscription is in Psalm 4, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. That is a superscription. So congratulations, you just learned a new word. Man, praise God. You're wondering today, am I gonna learn any new words today? Huh, maybe I should check out dictionary.com. You don't have to. I just got you one. Superscription. Superscriptions. And the good news is these superscriptions, they are part of the original psalm. They are inerrant. They are infallible. And they are found throughout the psalms. In fact, they are in 116 of them. Did you notice that as you've been reading through the psalms? 116 of them. And they function to help us understand basic information like who wrote the psalm or give various information about what instruments are necessary for the psalm. And then of those 116 superscriptions, it's important to note that there are 13 major historical notices or moments that are found in those superscriptions that tie individual psalms to some historical reference point in the life of David. And 12 of the 13 of those historical references happen in the first two books of the Psalms, Psalms 1 to Psalms 72, which means that books 1 and 2 ground those books in some experience that has happened in the life of David. So if you want to look at me at Psalm chapter 3, look at me at Psalm 3. Somebody want to just yell out to me the superscription in Psalm 3? Boom. So that Psalm harkens back to 2 Samuel chapter 13 to 19. And it explains what happened and why David ever fled from Absalom in the first place. So this Psalm sheds light on David's prayer at that time to the Lord. Now, um, now that you have met main characters, 
of the Psalms, and you understand how this book is made up. One book, five smaller books, that it's in the Bible, that's important, and how to study it. And you've learned some new words and study techniques for the book. Now our job is to try to figure out what is happening in these books and to see if we can understand the structure and the flow of the book of Psalms. You with me? This might just forever change how you read the book of Psalms. And I hope it does because the Psalms will become better and greater to you. Now, if you're a note taker, I'm gonna run through these Psalms very quickly. I already speak quickly, but they will be very quickly. So the best option for you to be and to do would be to have your Bible in your lap with a pen or a pencil and make little notes in your Bible as we are running through on the overview. Now, if you miss anything, I will send you my entire sermon and you can read all of my notes. I will, I will photocopy some pages of some commentaries and send them to you. I will do whatever I can to help you love God's word more. But I'm gonna run through very quickly. So let's start right at the beginning. Psalm chapter one, you ready? Psalm one, Psalm one. So we remember that the Psalms opens with the blessed man in Psalm 1, who, Psalm 2, is God's anointed king over Israel. Now, we're gonna cover these Psalms a bit more in depth next week, but that's an important information for this overview. Then in Psalm 3, we see there's conflict. The king is just ushered right into conflict, just as we saw that there would be in Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2. Remember, the kings of the earth are saying, let's burst their bonds, let's get away their cords. Psalm 3 opens with, there it is. So Psalm 3 doesn't waste any punches. It's just right into it. People going against David. Thus Absalom is located in this psalm, being right after Psalm 2, and he's identified as those who are raging against the Lord's anointed. That begins the rest of the tone and the tenor of all of book one. I mean, over and over again in this book, what we're gonna see in book one specifically is the persecution of David, the Lord's anointed, and how he perseveres through persecution. Thus, most of these Psalms in book one focus on the suffering of the anointed king, how David's life is just full of suffering, which if you've read Samuel and Chronicles, you would immediately say, no, duh. Do you remember from when he's anointed until he actually becomes king? There's all these chapters. He walks through all this craziness. Saul, the king, is trying to kill him over and over and over again. He's like out in the wilderness. He has to act like a crazy man. I mean, just nuts things happen to him as these people keep rebelling against him as the Lord's anointed. But at the end, he's still alive and he will reign as the king of Israel. David walks through a lot of suffering. Remember, he almost dies multiple times. He's pursued by Saul and lots of crazy things. But book one seems to pick up on that theme specifically in David's life, that the anointed king is the one who suffers as his kingdom is being established and he's crying out to the Lord for help through it all. Like, like we, just, we just read and sung Psalm 13. It's just, that is a anointed king psalm, just crying out to the Lord. What is happening? I trust in you. That's the prayer life of David. He's just suffering under all this persecution and suffering as God's anointed king, who is not seeing the fruition of God's promises come true. We also recognize the next historical notice, if you want to flip over to Psalm chapter 18, Saul is mentioned in that superscription. And book one, doesn't it, has just some of our favorite Psalms in it. Like we flip to, to Psalm 19, we see that the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 20, how we can trust the name of our Lord in the day of trouble. Psalm 22, which is a lament as David suffers at the hand of the wicked. It's just picked up by Jesus even. Remember, even on the cross, it starts off with the words that Jesus says on the cross. Followed by Psalm 23 then, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
which when you're walking through suffering is a beautiful reminder of God's goodness and his provision. And we just keep walking through that with reminders of God's goodness in the midst of David's suffering until we eventually get to Psalm chapter 41. Psalm 41, if you wanna turn there, uh, we see that this Psalm directly ties back to Psalm one. See that even the first word, blessed. That first word just ties Psalm 41 right back to Psalm one. We see blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Thus David here is rehearsing the kindness and the goodness of God who has protected him throughout all of his suffering at the hands of the wicked, the seed of the serpent. And if you look with me at Psalm 41, five to nine, we also see that it rehearses the hope of Psalm two. David sings here about the wicked. How there are those who say of him in malice, when will David die and his name perish? Then in verse seven, we see that his enemies are uniting against him. They're whispering about him and then they're betraying him to the point in verse 10 where David prays that God would raise him up from a sick bed that he is in so that he may repay them, which is the same vocabulary that we see in Psalm two. The cry is that the wicked will be crushed by the anointed king. So book one functions kind of to highlight all that suffering that David walks through as the anointed king over Israel. Then book two if you look at book two, Psalm 42, we see that there's someone that you might not know their name and that's superscription. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. And if you kept going, you would see that the Psalms of Korah last from Psalm 42 to 49. And then there's a Psalm of a guy named Asaph in Psalm 50. Now you might be wondering, who are these guys? But we've seen their names before. Specifically, they were part of the Levites that were specifically set up by David in 1 Chronicles chapter 631, along with a couple of other guys, to be those who looked after the worship of God by his people after the ark had been brought into Jerusalem. So as book two opens, it appears that we're at a different time in Israel's history. Psalm 41 kind of closes and it's, it appears as if David is identifying himself with the anointed king and like, did, did his kingdom inaugurate them? And, and then book two kind of begins and it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and it fades out and it fades back in at the bottom, it says a few years later and then it picks up on something else. That's kind of what we see happen here. We end book one with David identifying as the anointed king of Israel. Book two opens and we see David is ruling and reigning over the nation as the undisputed king and the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into Jerusalem. Now you don't have to flip with me, but maybe you can make a quick note of what we remember historically. We also know 2 Samuel 6, that's when David brought the Ark into Jerusalem. And then the next chapter, 2 Samuel 7, that's when he's told by God his throne will be established forever. Then we see some of the Davidic promises of Psalm 1 and 2 happen throughout 2 Samuel 8 10. What David starts doing right after that. So the ark comes in, David is anointed as king. And then do you know immediately what he starts doing? Conquering. He just conquers a whole whack of land. North, south, east, west, everywhere. He just conquers like a madman. It, it appears as if the anointed king is finally destroying and kicking the, the head of the serpent. He's just, he's knocking them all over the place. It's just victory after victory after victory that, that David has. Until uh, we, we get to uh, a, a psalm where, or 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, where we see the sin of David. And so, so, so then we, we see that actually in Psalm 50, 
uh, 51. And, and we see this, this history recorded of, of David's sin. And, and we see how David responds to God. And, and it's interesting, if, if we were to, to look at Israel's history back in 2 Samuel 8 to 10, one of the things that we'd notice is that there is this great twilight right before David's sin where everything, as I mentioned, just seems to be going really, really well. Psalm 48, if you wanna flip back to two Psalms with me. It's this great Psalm that speaks of the great city of Zion, of Jerusalem. And it says it's the city of the great king. If you just read that in, in verses one to three, we see that how it's her citadels, in her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So much so that in Psalm 48, when the wicked kings of the earth they assemble to come against them, just like Psalm 2 said they would. But when they get there and they see the city of Jerusalem, they get astounded, they get thrown into a panic, and they take flight. They see the anointed king of Israel ruling and reigning and how great the city is, and they're like, ah, nope, let's not do that. Let's instead run away wanting nothing to do with Israel after that. And so, so that psalm speaks all about the glory of that city and encourages the singer of the psalm to go around her, to number all of her towers, to consider her ramparts, to go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Things appear to be going really well. But then I mentioned Psalm 51. It's one of the darkest times of David's life as he commits just an atrocious sin with Bathsheba and then has her husband murdered so that he can cover it up. And when confronted with his sin, when it's brought to light, David is just cut to the heart and dismayed. His sin hits him just square in the gut. And Psalm 51 is a record of his prayer to God where he acknowledges his sin. He owns it and he asks the Lord to purge him with hyssop so that he will be clean, to create in him a, a clean heart and to renew a, a right spirit within him. He, he also remembers in Psalm 51, do you remember how the Lord took his anointing off of Saul and put it on David? It's mentioned there that that's like the spirit of God left Saul and went to David after this great sin that he did that disqualified him from being king. Likewise, here we see David just call out to the Lord and say, please do not take your spirit from me. He realizes the, the magnitude of his sin and how great it is and how he does not deserve to continue to be Israel's king. And the Lord doesn't take the anointing off of David. For he had given it to him into perpetuity in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord shows grace and mercy and kindness. But we do see that there are consequences in David's life for his sin. Do you remember? That son that he had with Bathsheba dies. Not only that, but Throughout the next few chapters of 2 Samuel, we see David's life just cast all the way back into turmoil and suffering. It's crazy. It's crazy. Book one is like all the suffering that David walks through. And then finally, he's the anointed king for 10 chapters of book, of book two. Things look great. And then David's sin, and then the rest of book two, right back into suffering. Right back into just facing the consequences of his sin. And things get bleak for David. So, so the Psalms follow David's rise to power, the suffering you walk through, good things. Psalm 51, suffering enters back into David's life. And yet God has been faithful to his covenant and chosen David's son, Solomon, whom God nicknames Jedidiah, which means the beloved of the Lord. 
again, if you're looking for a future child name, it's a great one, to be the future king after David. Thus, book two comes to a close with Psalm 72. You want to look with me at Psalm 72? Look with me at Psalm chapter uh, 72. And if you look with me there, you notice in the superscription, it just says, of Solomon. See that? Of Solomon. Now, you might be tempted to believe here that uh, this is a, a prayer or a song of Solomon. Uh, but if you look actually at 7220, so the last verse of, uh, of that psalm, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So that's how the book two ends. So you have to remember that in context, Psalm 72 is part of the prayers of David. And if you examine the psalm, you can really easily see that this is a psalm, a prayer that David prays for Solomon at the very end of his life. So if you look at it, it's kind of like at the end of book two that the sun is now setting on David's reign and yet it is just now rising upon Solomon. And so David, as any good dad, begins and says in his prayer, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And then the rest of his prayers are just a whole lot of prayers, praying God's blessing at the end of of his life for Solomon. And then book two ends. Thus, we, we start book three in a hopeful way. We're kind of like, okay, so David is now gone. Solomon is now here. Things are gonna go well. But as we read through the Psalms, what we see is that book three takes a dark turn as Israel heads into exile and Jerusalem becomes toppled by her enemies. So book three seems to trace the history from Solomon all the way to the exile. Let me see the little glimpses of this. If you look with me in Psalm 74, 3 to 11, or Psalm 79, 1 to 4, there are various attacks on the temple. They are dark psalms where God's people are walking through suffering and they're crying out to the Lord for help and deliverance. The Psalm 88 is the darkest of all the psalms in the Bible, where the sons of Korah are crying out to the Lord as they're coming under his wrath and they are being overwhelmed by his waves. That casts your mind back anywhere? How does God's judgment come upon his prophet when he's disobedient? The waves, Jonah. So Psalm, Psalm 89, then all of this is brought to a head as God's people are taken away into exile. Look at me in Psalm 89, verse 38. So dark. It says the king is cast off and rejected. Then in, in Verse 39, we see the crown of the anointed king is in the dust. Verse 40, the city walls are breached. The Psalm 89 ends with Ethan the Ezraite petitioning and asking the Lord, how long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Then he petitions the Lord to remember how his servants are mocked and how he bears in his heart the insults of the many nations with, with which his enemies mock the footsteps of the anointed. Thus in book three, it looks as though God's wrath has just brought an end to the covenant with David altogether. Judah now is being taken away into exile. God's people are taken out of the land. It looks bleak. But thankfully, the Psalms don't end here. 
nor does the history of Israel. So it's interesting if you look then at the superscript in Psalm 90. Who is it written by? Moses. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Like we're tracing David's life, the suffering that he walks through, his life as the ark comes in and praises to God for the sons of Korah and Asaph, David's sin down in. And then we go into the exile. Things are not looking well. And Moses is there. Now, you also might be fuzzy on the history of Israel, but you probably know that Moses lived a whole lot, lot before David. You know what I mean? Like forever before David. Uh, and so you, you, might, you might look at that and you wonder, what in the world? Why is, why is Moses here? Why do Ezra and Nehemiah, when they're putting together this, this, this book, why do they take a song of Moses, a prayer of Moses, and put it here? That doesn't make any sense, Ezra and Nehemiah. What are you doing? Well, to help us understand this, I want us to understand and be reminded of another part of Israel's history. Now, do you remember there are two times in the wilderness where Yahweh tells Moses that because Israel had broken covenant, he would judge Israel by destroying the nation and just begin all over again with Moses? Do you remember that? Because of their sin, I'm gonna destroy them. Moses, I'm starting all over with you, Bubba. Everyone else, but you're gonna keep it on, keep it on up. And uh, what we see, so this is in Exodus 32.10 and Numbers 14.12. But yet what does Moses do on both occasions? What does he do? prays. He petitions the Lord, doesn't he? He appeals to God's own concern for his own glory to not wipe out God's covenant people. And on both occasions, Yahweh shows mercy to Israel, forgiving them, though there are consequences, and continuing in covenant with them. So as Israel is now on their way out into exile, coming under the judgment of God, wondering, will God's wrath forever be upon us? In comes Moses, petitioning and praying and interceding for them. In verse 13, Moses petitions the Lord for the exact same thing that he did in Exodus 32, 12, that the Lord would turn and relent. And the result of Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 matches the result of his prayers in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. God does turn and relent, just as he promised he would, as if his people would call out to him from exile. Thus, the next psalm, Psalm 91, celebrates the individual who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and experiences his deliverance. See, a return back to Moses is a return back to the law of the Lord, a return back to Torah, a return back to loving the things of the Lord and meditating on his word day and night, which Israel had not done. And that is why they went into exile. Thus book four opens with this, this wonderful prayer of Moses, which would have been so sweet to hear and to be reminded of in the time of exile. And then the next Psalms in book four are some of the most beautiful Psalms that we have in the entire Old Testament that praise the character and nature of the faithfulness of God. And they're sung while Israel is still in exile. 
is in exile, they need to remember that the Lord is faithful. He is true to his promises. And even though I'm undergoing the consequences of sin right now, he will be faithful and bring us back into the land. That's all of book four just does that. They, they pray in, in Psalm 93 to 100, knowing that God will enact his reign through this future coming Davidic king. So their, their hope in God is just fueled throughout book four. So if you look at Psalm 104 to 16, 106, you see this glorious summation psalms that recount the history of Israel, starting with the creation of the world in Psalm 104, then tracing God's work through calling Abraham and Moses in 105, and then Psalm 106 traces how the Israelites have this up and down relationship with God where they constantly rebel, so they're sent into exile, and then God saves them, and then they rebel and send into exile, and then God saves them. And, and before the doxology, book four ends with these words, save us, O Lord and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So before ends, just longing, Lord, please save us from exile, which makes the start of book five all the more glorious. Look with me at Psalm 107, verses one to three. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The redeemed of the Lord. Did you catch that? The redeemed of the Lord. This is Exodus style vocabulary. The redeemed of the Lord must speak. Those he has redeemed from the hand of distress. Even from the lands he gathered them from the east and the west, from the north and from the sea. Thus the very plea at the end of book four finds its answer in celebration in book five that the Lord has done just that. He has redeemed his people and brought them in from among the nations to which they were scattered. Then Psalm 108 repeats Psalm 57 and 60, projecting the life of the historical David into the future. So David is dead and gone, but they're looking forward to a future Davidic king. And then Psalm 110 celebrates the enthronement of that future priest king from David's line, who is at Yahweh's right hand. And it is a glorious Psalm that is chock full of New Testament usage. And I cannot wait to preach it in about nine years. Thus, after this new king is enthroned, we have all these hallelujah psalms where the word hallelujah is over and over and over again in Psalm 111 to 117, followed by Psalm 118, which is Martin Luther's favorite hymn, which looks forward to how the king will return in triumph to the gates of Jerusalem. And then we see in Psalm 119, a celebration of God's law for the good of God's people in God's place. Then we have the songs of ascent, which reflect the geographic references for how when the Jews were brought back from exile, they went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill, so you have to go up to it. Thus, these psalms were sung as the people came streaming back into the land. And then throughout their history, as they would come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord three times a year, they would celebrate God's loving kindness and sing these songs. So Psalm 190, or 136 is all about that, God's loving kindness and then Psalm 137 is all about the calling for the seed of the woman to bring a final triumph over the seed of the serpent, hoping in the new king from the line of David, Psalm 138 to 145. And then the entire book ends with an exclamation point doxology that celebrates God's salvation, restoration, and the fulfillment of all that God has promised. It ends gloriously. 
See, this is what I mean when I say that it's important to understand the flow of the book, of the book of Psalms. And by understanding that, you can understand then the structure of the book. See, before we might not have seen any kind of structure, but now we can't help to see it. It's as plain as day if we actually really look at it and study it as a book. Thus, as my seminary professor explains, the Psalms have been purposefully arranged so that the individual Psalms join together to tell a whole story. That's why one theologian, in talking about this overall structure, he writes, the great majority of interpreters, historically speaking, regard the Psalms as foretelling eschatological events, events that, that look forward to the eschaton, when, when the Davidic king will come and set up his kingdom here on the earth. Thus, the great majority of the interpreters see Psalms as foretelling what will be on that day, interpreting all of this in light of the Messiah and of eschatological war and of the ingathering of Israel and so on. And so ultimately the Psalms point to Jesus. See, see we remember, don't we, how, how Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 24 that everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now the word Psalms there actually is kind of a broader category of literature in the Old Testament, but the, can, the, the Psalms are included in that drop-down menu. So, so the Psalms are, are part of the Old Testament scriptures and they point to Jesus. And it's what Jesus says about these Old Testament scriptures. He says the scriptures write about how the Christ should suffer. Think about book one, how the noisy king would suffer. And then on the third day, rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Luke 24, 46 to 47. Not only that, but in Jesus' own words and in his own sermons and in his life, we see recorded in the gospels, he frequently takes the lines of various Psalms and applies them as being all about him and his life and his ministry. Then the New Testament authors being taught by Jesus that the Psalms are all about Jesus do the same thing. Thus in the New Testament, we have 79 quotations of the Psalms and another 333 allusions to the Psalms, all demonstrating how the Psalms work together to anticipate and point to Jesus and his coming kingdom. So throughout the next few weeks, and then Lord willing, if he tarries and keeps us all here. We will walk through Psalms together for the next 12 years or so, slowly unpacking Psalm after Psalm, understanding what does the text mean? How does it fit in context? How that was sung by Israel, how that text anticipates Jesus, and then how we begin applying the Psalms into our lives. And by doing so, we get to enter into the joy of how Christians have been reading, studying, singing, and praying the Psalms for the last 2,000 years. Confidence that there is the Davidic coming King, Jesus, the anointed King who is coming to set up his kingdom here upon the earth. There is, in fact, a day coming where every knee will bow before Jesus. Some will do it out of love and joy in seeing their savior, God and king at his rightful place on his throne, ruling and reigning over everything and others will bow as those who have been conquered. Doing so as those who are coming under his righteous wrath for all of eternity future. As they suffer the judgment of a holy God who they refused to submit to and bow the knee to in their lives. Thus, the question that the Psalms leaves us wondering is, have I joyfully submitted to this king? That's what they're asking. Have you 
joyfully submitted to Jesus as your God, Savior, and King. Put another way, are you one of the blessed? Are you, by grace and through faith, part of the seed of the woman who longs for the day when your Messiah, King, will come and crush all of his enemies, where justice will flow, and where your salvation will be evident to all? Or, on that day, are you one who will only expect judgment because you are the wicked? And if you, like David in Psalm 51, are confronted with the reality of your sin, you have two options. If you realize, actually, if, if I think about that, I'm part of the wicked. You have two options. You can, you can either admit your sin against God and ask for forgiveness and turn away from it and turn in faith and believe upon Jesus and become part of the blessed today. Or your heart can harden against the things of God. And you can continue in wickedness, refusing to bow before the anointed king, Jesus, and coming under his righteous wrath. But the choice is yours. Thus the Psalms ask, which choice will you make? So let's pray, and then we will sing a little bit in response of God's kindness to us in Jesus. So Father, I wanna thank you for today and the opportunity we have to walk through your word. I pray that you would use it mightily in our hearts and lives. I pray that, that your word would not return void, but that we might, as your people, understand your word more and more and more, and that we might grow in our understanding of how all of scripture points together to point to Jesus. And so that we, as your people, might have lives that are free from sin, and when we sin, how do we respond to you? And how do we walk through persecutions because we are the seed of the woman who's being attacked by the seed of the serpent? And how do we cry out to you and how do we pray to you? And how do we walk through the ups and downs and the heartbreaks and the losses as your people? How do we remember your character of old? How do we remember that your promises are true and they'll all come to pass as we're walking through suffering? And then how we are filled with hope of the coming day, of your coming kingdom and, and longing for it and expecting it more and more and more as we see brokenness around us, just praying, calling out to you to come. So I pray, Father, that your psalms would work their, their intended effect in our hearts. That we might love you more as a result of studying them and spending a lifetime processing through them and praying through them. We love you and we ask this all in Christ's name.